0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. After the Columbine shooting, the NRA wrestled with what its public stance should be and whether to move forward with its annual gathering days later in Denver.
1: We have meeting insurance. I just Screw the insurance. The message that it will send is that the, even the NRA was brought to its knees and the media will have a field day with
0: it. NPR obtained tapes the public had never heard before. Investigative reporter Tim Mack joins us. Then, a new political documentary set in Denver called Running With My Girls.
2: If a woman
3: of color asked me if she should run for office, I would absolutely say yes. We're like, please run for those who can't or don't think they can
4: Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC, I'm Ryan Warner. The National Rifle Association has long held a position after mass shootings that the gun debate, which usually follows, is about politics, not public safety. We now know that messaging first took shape after 12 students and a teacher were killed at Columbine High School in 1999. NPR's investigative team obtained never-before-made public recordings among NRA leadership as they strategized a response to the attack the next day.
1: Is there something concrete that we can offer, not because guns are responsible, but because we care about these people? Is there anything? Uh, does that look crass? or uh, you, like a victim's fund. Or... You know, we create a victim's fund, and, and we, uh, we give a victim a million dollars or something, something like that. Uh, does that look bad, or does it look uh, well, I mean that can be twisted too. I mean why why are you giving money? You feel responsible no, well you're true. it can be twisted, but we
0: feel sympathetic and uh, respectful. That was then NRA official Kane Robinson on a conference call with NRA lobbyist Jim Baker, PR consultant Tony Macris, and NRA spokesman Bill Powers. The timing was especially fraught because the group's annual convention was scheduled to take place not long after, in Denver. Let's get further into this with NPR investigative correspondent Tim Mack. Tim, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I want to talk more about the exchange we just heard in a moment, but you reviewed more than two and a half hours of recordings. Where did these tapes come from?
5: So basically, I've been covering the NRA for many years. Uh, and actually have a book out called Misfire about the inner workings of the NRA. And so I, as, as I was researching and developing sources on the inner workings of this organization, uh, I managed to get these audio tapes, which were recorded secretly by a participant in these calls. Obviously, someone really very high up in NRA circles. And that individual shared these tapes on the condition that their identity not be divulged to the public. We've taken some steps to verify the tape's authenticity uh, in a number of ways, including by confirming the identities of those speaking on the tapes with two sources. We've also compared the voices on the calls with publicly available audio. Hmm. And we've reached out to the NRA for comment, providing them transcripts of the audio that we wanted to use.
0: What do you remember thinking when you first pressed play on these tapes?
5: You know, there are, as an investigative reporter, we think a lot about standards of evidence, right? Sometimes people can tell you what happened on a call like this. Sometimes there are, you know, people have contemporaneous notes. But like the gold standard of evidence for an investigative reporter is audio, (laughs) ongoing audio, or, uh, you know, sworn depositions are another kind of gold standard. But audio is an amazing resource because you can hear in real time these NRA officials, as they're thinking about this problem and they're trying to deal with and grapple with this tragedy and what it's going to mean for them, that is, uh, you know, my first thought on this was it was incredible to hear these tapes.
0: Who are some of the others on the call? I mean, who else was involved?
5: These are some of the NRA's top strategists, advisors, lobbyists, PR people, crisis management people, the executives of the organization. There are so many people on these conference calls. So you have Executive Vice President Wayne LaPierre. He's the head of the NRA on the line. You've also got longtime NRA lobbyist Marion Hammer. She's there. She's a big force in the organization that has been for many years. And you've got advertising strategist Angus McQueen, who's uh, really been a very influential force Inside the NRA for decades and decades and decades, determining its strategy and messaging. So they really face a dilemma in these conversations. And then NRA lobbyist Jim Baker kind of lays it out.
1: This is the same concern, obviously, that everybody has is that at the same period where they're going to be burying these children, we're going to be having media within 10 miles of our convention center, the world's media. Trying to run through the exhibit hall looking at kids fondling firearms, which is going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible juxtaposition.
0: Again, these are the NRA's strategic deliberations after Columbine. Here's NRA official Jim Land and PR consultant Tony Macris.
1: I got to tell you, we got to think this thing through because if we duck tail and run, we're going to be accepting responsibility for what happened out there. That's that's one very good argument, Jim. On the other side, if you don't appear to be deferential in honoring the dead, you end up being a tremendous head who wouldn't tuck tail and run, you know? So it's a double-edged sword.
0: The NRA w- was struggling with whether to cancel its annual convention entirely, which was said to happen in Denver, or perhaps scale it back dramatically. Um, we heard the idea of creating a million-dollar victims' relief fund. What ended up happening with that, Tim?
5: What's so remarkable about these tapes, right, is that you hear them considering a softer approach uh, in the wake of the shootings. Uh, You mentioned the million-dollar victims' relief fund. Um, They're thinking about canceling the convention. This this would have been a totally different strategy than the one they eventually decided on. Um, The strategists, they ultimately conclude that canceling the convention would deny them a platform to respond to criticism and that a kind of cancellation would be an opportunity for attacks by the national media. Essentially, they think that, you know, giving any sort of concession is going to be an admission of complicity or accepting responsibility. This is the sort of thinking that gets more and more calcified over the course of these two and a half hours worth of tape. Here's the NRA's executive vice president, Wayne LaPierre, talking to that longtime NRA lobbyist I, I mentioned earlier, Marion Hammer.
1: We have meeting insurance. I just Screw the insurance. The message that it will send is that the, even the NRA was brought to its knees and, and the media will have a field day with it.
5: So they ultimately don't create this victims fund the nra goes through withholding its convention in denver after the shootings they do scale it down in size but it still took place in colorado and it was met by thousands of protesters who turned out to demonstrate against the nra's presence there
0: the nra also described in these calls some of its membership in less than flattering terms what prompted those comments
5: Gosh, what, what is so shocking about some of this tape is you hear what the NRA's top officials think about a segment of their membership in private. And so, in addition to talking about their strategy, they're worried about some of their organization's more extreme members and they disparage them privately. They're worried about these members who might show up to Denver because they're thinking if we scale back the convention, Quote-unquote normal members might not show up, and more extreme members who might go off script after Columbine might show up and embarrass them. You hear a number of terms used to describe this portion of the group's membership. You have LaPierre, you've got Macris, you've got Hammer. They're all among the NRA officials who can be heard on these tapes disparaging the group's membership.
1: You know, the other problem is holding a member meeting without an exhibit hall. You know, yeah. The people you are most likely to get in that member meeting without an exhibit hall are the nuts. That's That's right. right. That made that point earlier. I agree. The fruitcakes are going to show up. If you pull down the exhibit hall, that's not going to leave anything for the media except the members meeting. And you're going to have the wackos with all kinds of crazy resolutions with all kinds of dressing like a bunch of hillbillies and idiots and and it's gonna it's gonna be the worst thing you can imagine
5: and hammer continues that quote the hair on the back of my neck stood up when the thought occurred to her that quote-unquote normal members might not want to go to denver after the shootings and the tragedy and they might have to deal with as she says and you just heard a bunch of quote, hillbillies and idiots.
0: I mean, you report that this is a recurrent internal issue for the NRA, that often its most radical members are also the most outspoken.
5: Right, well the the NRA exists in part to advocate for legislation, and often legislative compromises are required to see bills passed into law. But there's always been a hardline faction in the NRA, totally uninterested in compromises, in any position other than the most expansive view of the Second Amendment. These members are the kind of folks that are actually creating a ton of trouble for the NRA now. Mm. So 20 plus years later, there's, there's a deep through line between the folks that they were worried about then and the folks that they're worried about now. The NRA is an enormous amount of financial and legal trouble in the current days, and there are a lot of NRA members that are frustrated with the current direction of the organization. I mean, the NRA is in an enormous amount of financial and legal trouble.
0: So much of the discussion on these tapes, Tim, is about optics. How will the NRA look? Did the tapes include any meaningful discussion of policy, like whether the NRA might reconsider any of its political stances?
5: Only tangentially, and and not very seriously. They they talk about policy in in, in the sense of you know, what they're not going to be able to get as a result of the shootings at Columbine. But they don't talk about reconsidering their policy stances. What they're worried about is how the media will interpret various things. That's their primary concern in these hours of tapes. They're worried about how is it going to look? How much flack are we going to get? And in particular, you know, are we going to lose members? Are we going to lose money? Those are the primary concerns that we hear on this tape.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Morner, and we are speaking with NPR investigative reporter Tim Mack. Uh, he got a hold of some tapes that reveal the deliberations of top brass at the National Rifle Association in the days after the shooting at Columbine High School some 20 years ago. Uh, these tapes also show that what happened after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, was a consideration. Uh, of course, the trial for the Oklahoma City bomber was uh, in Denver. What was the what was the connection?
5: Well, you have to go back to the mid 90s when the NRA put out a fundraising letter just a week before that bombing, calling the ATF quote jackbooted government thugs, and then of course the bombing targeted. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and other federal agencies in that building in Oklahoma City. After the bombing, the NRA kind of had a defiant stance. LaPierre, the head of the NRA, defended the rhetoric that was used by the organization in its fundraising letter. And this was met by a real firestorm across the country. There was an exodus of a half a million members of the NRA, a very substantial portion of its membership and as you might remember former republican president george hw bush publicly resigned as an nra member in protest of that language Mm -hmm. now um that number i mentioned half a million members leaving the organization that's a number that's never been reported prior to now but it was something that was specifically cited on these tapes they're worried about they're worried about oklahoma city bombing and the fallout for the nra repeating itself that they're going to see a lot of negative media and membership being driven out of the organization as a result of the of the shootings at Columbine.
0: In the end, at the scaled-back convention in Denver, then-NRA President Charlton Heston delivered a message that the group's leaders planned out in those phone calls following Columbine, a message really that does still resonate today. What is that message?
5: Well, you know... Like I've been saying, there's been these echoes from what you hear in the tapes and what happened after Columbine, and you see that there's a direct relation between that and what happens after Sandy Hook and what happens after Parkland. Heston's message is the NRA's message even today, that the national media should not be trusted, that society and not firearms are the root cause of these sorts of mass shootings, and that any conversation about guns or gun legislation after mass shootings is an inappropriate politicization after these tragedies.
0: That that even raising the question is inherently wrong. Uh, And of course, that's what journalists are supposed to do.
5: I think that's right. I think the NRA has repeatedly said that it's inappropriate to have these conversations immediately after these tragedies. And that's been a common response. What
0: do these recordings reveal, if anything, about the NRA's relationship with the firearms industry?
5: A lot of critics of the NRA will frequently say that the NRA is kind of beholden to the to the gun industry. But what we really hear on this call is NRA leaders claiming the opposite. They're saying the industry is ready to support them, willing to follow their lead, basically willing to do whatever it is the NRA wants to orchestrate. You hear a top NRA lobbyist making that claim to his uh, colleagues on the call. I mean,
0: that's fascinating. In other words, the NRA is the one with the power, perhaps even to influence the firearms industry itself. Uh, It represents the consumers of those firearms. Do you think that's a fair way to frame it?
5: I think so. And also another interesting thing on the tapes is the relationship between the NRA and politicians. On the tape, Wayne LaPierre tells his colleagues that uh, the Senate Majority Whip, a Republican, had called and asked for secret talking points about how to deal with the fallout of the Columbine shootings. That, that, that's really instructive because it suggests that Republican leaders at the time were looking to the NRA for direction on messaging and strategy.
0: What does the NRA say about this reporting?
5: We reached out to the NRA We provided them with transcripts of the audio we used in the story. Uh, In keeping with prior practice and to protect our source, we didn't provide the tapes of the audio. Um, An NRA spokesperson responded by saying that the story was a, quote, hit piece and also uh, complained that the NRA was denied the tape.
0: So they were more taking issue with the way you gave them the information than the substance of it? Is that what I'm hearing?
5: I didn't get responses on the substance of it. I didn't mm-hmm. get responses on the way they strategize and the substance of that. I didn't get, uh, you know, any response substantively about their relationship to the gun industry and Republican politicians. And I didn't get a response substantively on how senior NRA officials had referred to their own members in disparaging ways.
0: I wonder if you've thought about putting yourself in the shoes of the folks on this call. And in a way, do you think that they're in an impossible position?
5: It's hard for me to say. and um, it's, it's hard for me to put myself in the position of these folks 20 plus years ago. I mean, this was the start of the era we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, an era in which mass students have become more common and and in schools in particular. I, I think that the NRA at the time was in a real crisis, which is that they had to deal with this this convention happening just days after Columbine and in Denver, not far away from the site of the shooting.
0: Thanks for sharing the reporting with us, Tim. I appreciate your time.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
0: NPR investigative correspondent Tim Mack NPR obtained never-before-heard recordings of NRA leadership made in the days after the shooting at Columbine High School in 1999. We'll link to the reporting on the Colorado Matters podcast page at CPR.org. Mac is also the author of Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Be right back with measuring water use as a step towards conserving it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. A more reliable CPR stream on your phone. An easy way to tell CPR what you're thinking.
6: Better browsing.
7: These are just a few of the improvements to the CPR app.
6: If you already use the app, you'll need to update to the new version on your phone or tablet.
0: And get the latest from CPR News, CPR Classical, and Indy1023
7: everywhere you go.
4: The new CPR app. Search for Colorado Public Radio in the Apple App Store or in Google Play.
0: Decades of drought on the Western Slope mean there's less water to go around. So the state is making more people report how much water they use. And for the first time... The state wants rules on just how to do that, as each drop of Colorado River water becomes more valuable. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports.
6: It's a full house in Walden at the county's event center, northwest of Rocky Mountain National Park. Usually used for rodeos and 4-H clubs, today this room is filled with farmers and ranchers who are concerned about their water. Kevin Rhine, the director of the Colorado Division of Water Resources, kicks off a presentation.
8: There's a lot of details to these rules. Types of devices, how they need to be installed, how they need to be verified, how you will record and report your data.
6: Ryan is explaining the details of a proposed rule that would spell out exactly how the state will require these farmers and ranchers to measure the water they use. Right now, Colorado has a state statute that gives water managers the authority to require water measurement if there's a need. But the law is vague and doesn't say how. The new rule could change that in northwest Colorado. The audience starts to ask questions, like, why is this happening now, and why are these rules needed here? Jeb Stewart is a rancher in the area. So
7: I would suggest it may be a reasonable comment by some of these water users here in in this room to say that these rules should apply to the whole state.
6: So why are state water planners proposing this new water measurement rule in northwest Colorado? Director Ryan explains. Historically, there's been plenty of water in this corner of the state, in the White and Yampa River basins. Now, with a warmer climate, those sources are becoming less reliable.
8: The Yamp River Basin, on the average, is producing less water than it did 20 years ago. That could continue to decline. That's the effect of climate.
6: So as the state starts to require this part of Colorado to measure how much water it's using, they also want regulations spelling out how users should make those measurements. The state hasn't finalized equipment or methods, but they hope to come up with standards that generate more consistent and reliable measurements for a more accurate picture of how water is being used. Ryan says the plan is to eventually have similar rules across the western slope.
8: There's a lot of value in measuring the water use on the west slope. It demonstrates to the most accurate degree how we use water in Colorado.
6: Not just any water, Colorado River water, which more than 40 million people rely on. Colorado is in a 100-year-old agreement called the Colorado River Compact to share this water with other states. Ryan says if it ever comes to a point where Colorado can't send enough water downstream to meet those obligations, state officials need to know where all that water is going.
8: The urgency for these rules is good, accurate water administration to the benefit of Colorado water users and good, accurate data if there is a compact compliance obligation in the future.
6: That data could be crucial if there's ever a legal fight over water in the Colorado River, which is drying up from climate change and overuse. At his family's ranch outside of Steamboat Springs, Todd Hagenbu stands next to a creek where he recently installed equipment to measure the water he uses.
7: I do want to be able to prove to downstream users that I have this water and I am putting it to beneficial use, as is my right under Colorado state law.
6: Hagenbu sees this proof as crucial because it's confirmation that he's putting his water to use, which is required in order to hold on to a water right. Hagenbu's new headgate in the creek opens to let water into its irrigation ditch. In the ditch, there's a metal box that measures how much water is making its way to his land. Right now, opening that gate does nothing.
7: My measuring box has been dry for quite a while because Morrison Creek has dropped to the point that even with my new headgate, I can't get water.
6: Northwestern Colorado is hurting from decades of drought. In 2018, the state had to cut off some water users on the Yampa River for the first time. That triggered the orders requiring water measurements for all users in the area, because accurate water measurements are needed to settle local water disputes. Hagenbu wasn't surprised.
7: Things do seem to be getting warmer and drier, and that being the case, there's just more pressure on the limited water we do have. And anytime you have scarcity, you tend to have more rules.
6: Hagenbu understands if some farmers and ranchers feel like the proposed measurement rules are heavy-handed, since the state statute was enough until now. But he says some clarity could be helpful, as long as the rules strike a good balance between what the state needs and what works for water users. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News.
0: The Denver Film Festival runs through Sunday, and it features a number of movies with Colorado roots. CPR arts and culture reporter Monica Castillo takes us behind the scenes.
2: With over 100 feature-length movies to choose from, it can be a little intimidating to jump into the Denver Film Festival. But if you're looking for some films with local flavor, there's the Colorado Spotlight, a selection of movies with ties to the state. The films have been made by visitors or by recent or longtime residents. Some were filmed in the Centennial State, others elsewhere. It's a mix of narrative fiction and documentaries each with their own story to tell. Filmmaker Skinner Myers is a Colorado transplant. He only recently joined the faculty of CU Boulder. His feature debut, The Sleeping Negro, is an exploration of race in the U.S. in the style of European art house movies.
7: But what I'm trying to do is put them through and make them uncomfortable so they can reassess their worldview, not only on how they see Black people, but maybe just how they see their positionality, especially if they're white, like how they see their whiteness operating in this world.
2: Myers' film The Sleeping Negro looks different than much of the program. It's because Myers insists on shooting on film stock, a tip he passes on to his
7: students. It is a dying art. I mean, the big filmmakers can afford to shoot on it, and that's a big blessing. But I'm trying to get, like, micro-budget indie filmmakers to say, look, let's shoot on film. It's like listening to music on an LP versus, like, an MP3 file. Like, it does something to the subconscious.
2: The films Coloradans are sharing at the festival also dive into other controversial and deep topics, ones that are intensely personal. Director Jamie Boyle is a sixth-generation Coloradan born and raised outside of Boulder who now calls New York City home. Her personal film, Anonymous Sister, is about how the opioid epidemic affected her family. She says sharing her story can illustrate how widespread and long-lasting the effects of the epidemic can be.
7: I mean, I I hope the film helps people understand the nuances of substance use disorder, what that could look like and what form it can take. And that, you know, these are highly, highly addictive medications. There's a reason they weren't prescribed before the early 90s for anything other than short term pain.
2: Boyle's film traces her life back to 1996, the same year pharmaceutical company Purdue sent video advertisements encouraging doctors to prescribe more painkillers. Her older sister got her first opioid prescription after a skating injury left her in chronic pain. Their mother would get her first prescription of the drugs a few years later. Boyle worried about sharing her family's pain in a documentary, but found her first audience's receptive.
7: The second I started running it by some other people, they felt the same way because that's the insidiousness of these epidemics. They they crawl in out of nowhere and then they come to define your life or your kid's life and your loved one's lives. For other Coloradans,
2: casting a sympathetic eye on world affairs has led them to their new films. In Revolution from Afar, director and CU Boulder grad student Bentley Brown gets personal in a different way. He sat with Sudanese and Sudanese-American artists and activists in the wake of their country's revolution. They worried about their families and wondered about their identities while living in the U.S.
0: I was really interested with what it's like to not just be all hyped up about the revolution and the possibility of change in Sudan. But, but what does it mean to be balancing cultural identities?
2: Other filmmakers are showcasing the state itself in their work, even if they're not from Colorado. Filmmaker Sarah Terry may call Los Angeles home, but her profile of the Denver Meadows Mobile Park in Aurora is at the heart of her documentary, A Decent Home. It's a
6: community look at a national issue. And it's also, it's the first documentary ever made on mobile home parks. Nobody's ever made one. That's just part and parcel of the
2: stigmatization that we place on that type of home and living. These are but a few of the movies screening at the Denver Film Festival. Because many of the filmmakers and collaborators are local, a number will be on hand for screenings and conversations after the shows. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News.
0: And for transparency's sake, we should say that CPR is a sponsor of the Colorado Spotlight section of the Denver Film Festival. Another locally grown film at the festival is a documentary about women of color running for office in Denver. They all saw gentrification squeeze out their friends and neighbors and wanted to do something about it.
3: When a few of my homegirls decided to run for office... I quit my job, bought a camera, and started making a documentary about their experience. If a woman of color asked me if she should run for office, I would absolutely say yes. We're like, please run for those who can't
0: or don't think they can. The voice of RTD board member Chantel Lewis and before that, the filmmaker Rebecca Henderson, who coincidentally decided to run for public office herself, After making this movie, Rebecca joins me, along with arts reporter Monica Castillo, whose report you just heard. She also watched the film, and we thought we'd team up for this interview.
9: Indeed. And hello, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us. Oh, Thank you so much for having
0: me. The film is primarily set in 2019, when Lisa Calderon is running for Denver mayor. Candice DeBaca and Veronica Barela are vying for seats on city council. Uh, only Cidabaka wins, by the way. But what did they see in their communities, uh, Rebecca, that prompted them to run?
3: All of the women that are featured in the film—I know you mentioned three of them. There were five, five women that I um, that ended up in the film. Um, each one of them had something personal that sort of forced them to run, um, and I think that choosing which sort of focus we had on it, we did sort of land on gentrification because that was like a very common threat, but all of them had concerns with, um, police brutality, uh, transportation infrastructure. Um, so, so they, 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 they were all very motivated and active in their communities prior to me ever rolling my camera on them.
9: I'm sure there were more than a few candid moments on the campaign trail that didn't make it into the film. How did you decide what to keep and what to cut? Uh,
3: That process um, (laughs) for any filmmaker is really challenging, especially when you have so many compelling subjects. Um, Ultimately, where my editor and Lila Park and my producer Sarah McKellick Lane, where we sort of landed... um, was we had to tell a story that would reach beyond Denver while also highlight, highlighting the work that's being done here. Um, we also were thinking, <laughs> you know, no one's ever going to be sort of happy with, with the final cut of a film. Um, I mean, but I, I'm very happy with our final cut. I just think that I could have made... I could have made five movies hmm. um, with the amount of footage we had. Uh we had about 32 hours of interviews and then a hundred hours of just sort of me running alongside them. So we had a lot of footage to there was a lot there.
0: Um And of course, the name of the film is Running With My Girls. I suppose that's running for office, but it sounds like literal running alongside them with the camera, as you say. Um, There's a refrain, Rebecca, in the film that representation matters, meaning that it's important for women and people of color to see politicians who look like them. But there's another theme in the film that just because because you have a, a black mayor or black city council member doesn't mean that your city is a friendly place to people of color. Square those messages for us.
3: Well, um, there's an expression that um, you may have heard or may not heard that sometimes we'll say um, in the black community, people say, not all skin folk are your kinfolk, And... I think that just because someone looks like you, and in the past, I, I do think that that was something you could kind of count on. You know, if a person was black or brown, you would think they have your best interests at heart. Um, so I think it, for me, on a personal level, sort of watching Denver and being excited to live in a city where I thought there was all of this black representation, but then not seeing the policy to 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 back it up essentially, um, was was an eye-opening experience for, for me.
0: Um, I wonder if that was part of the reason you wanted to make this film. So not just seeing what was happening uh, with your friends who were feeling that they could run for office and that their voice mattered, but your own frustrations with the city.
3: I mean, you know, this is the truth. I live a very nice life in Denver um, and I think if I hadn't have gotten involved with um, some of the change the name efforts in the neighborhood that I live in um, Central Park I don't think I would have I would have paid attention in the same in the same way I am not impacted in the same way that um, many of the people, that we interviewed for this film, that we featured in the film. And so to me, but I also operate as a person who feels like if your kid isn't okay, then my kid isn't okay. So I think, I think being part of the, of, of, of the movement around the city for change and sort of for preservation of Denver and protection of our most vulnerable members of the city, that was why I wanted to be involved. Because when I see something and I think about it, I want... I want other people to know and then I also want them to sort of be entertained. That's a thread in all of my all of my work as I, I get excited and I want to share share it.
0: You mentioned the change the name movement so that was the name change of the neighborhood where you live from Stapleton uh, this is of course the neighborhood where the old airport was and it's becoming Central Park because of the connection of the name Stapleton to the KKK in some very racist history. Uh, all right, Candy C. who ends up winning her city council race in Denver in 2019, really opens up to you about how her childhood still drives her.
6: When I was growing up and in school, always being deeply invested in my studies, what I was doing was overcompensating for what was happening in my home life, for what we were dealing with when we didn't have gas and light or when we didn't have food. It was my way of putting on that facade so that people wouldn't judge me because of that, so that I wouldn't get a different level of investment from my teachers because of that. And it worked for me for so long. You know, I was able to just carry our family forward by pushing through at whatever cost. And I feel like I'm in that exact same situation again because I'm like reliving a pattern that I'm very accustomed to. And it's a survival pattern.
9: Rebecca, does that resonate with you personally?
3: Hmm. I think that there's no public person even to a small to a small public no person of color that doesn't think about how their actions will impact other people and their community and their family and feeling like if we don't go forward that that, that we won't be able to help other people along the way so for me i even even right now sitting on this interview, I know that this means so much to community that I'm sitting here representing them. So it is, I'm sorry to get emotional, but it's a big deal, you know, to, to be able to, to do it and hope that you're, you're going in the right direction.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And with our arts and culture reporter, Monica Castillo, we are speaking with Denver filmmaker Rebecca Henderson. Her new documentary is called Running With My Girls. It's part of the Denver Film Festival. So um, the candidates in this film, Calderon, Cidabaca, and Brunella, are All facing the realities of fundraising. Let's hear another clip from the documentary, uh, again, which is streaming as part of the Denver Film Festival.
4: Even our low-cost, high-impact campaign, we still have to get things printed and get the message out. And it's expensive to do that. Like
3: so much money.
4: Hi, Helen. This is Lisa Calderon, candidate for Denver mayor. Just wanting to give you an update about how the campaign is going. So with- Call time is when you call rich people, mostly people you don't know, and ask them for a lot of money. That model is really built on white establishment candidates who are running against Republicans. And so the lists that they would give me were not really yielding very many results. So having me call wealthy people in California, people are like, why are you calling me in California? And I wanna say, I don't know either. (laughs) This is a list my finance person gave me where I've asked staff to shift now is call people who know me. Like, I have thousands of Facebook followers. Why are we not reaching out to those folks? Hey, Jeff, what are you doing? We're trying to make a funding deadline by tomorrow, so... Oh my gosh, you're amazing. Yes, you can do it right now with me. If someone were to tell you before you ran for office that you spend most of your time raising money, I can see why a lot of people would be turned off. I did not know that. I want to be out there with the people. I want to be developing policy. I want to have more forums and debates. And yet, I've been told from the beginning, you need to spend most of your time raising money.
9: Rebecca, what, in your opinion, needs to change for elections to be more equitable for all candidates looking to represent their communities? Well,
3: I think we absolutely need, you know, campaign uh, finance (laughs) reform in a pretty significant way. Um, I also think that I think people need to know that local elections are so important and they're they're winnable. Um, and, and so I think a lot of times people, I say, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to run for this or, you know, and I'm going to run for state Senator, or I'm going to run for U S Senate and, and, and they don't focus on what we would consider smaller elections when the power is really sitting right here and it's like waiting for people to take it. Um, so I think that people being aware that it is doable and that what, um, campaigns do with money, small grassroots campaigns really can do with people. It's possible. This film got made with people. You know, nobody paid me to make this film.
0: <laughs> you talk about these races being winnable, but of course, there were candidates and and friends of yours who did not win their elections. Um, how was that as as friend and filmmaker?
3: It was heartbreaking. Um, it was heartbreaking. I, there's not, um, all of the clips of me crying with some of my production, uh, uh team, you know, when that happened, I became too, almost too involved. Um, I think in the, in that it was, it was really, it was hard. I mean, I, I don't, I don't kind of don't know how else to say nope. it except that it was so hard.
0: Did you try to get an interview with Denver Mayor Michael Hancock? He he's sort of the foil in this film, but we you know we don't hear much from him. I'll say that we reached out to his office. He hasn't seen the film yet.
3: So, um no, I didn't because this film isn't about Michael Hancock. This film is about the women of Denver who had enough and decided that they were going to take action. So, it isn't, you know, he's We all know
9: who he is.
3: Um, So, yeah, it's not a film about Michael Hancock.
9: As we learn in the film, you were first inspired to run for office yourself. First unsuccessfully, then you won, becoming a delegate in the Denver neighborhood of Central Park. What advice would you share to any woman of color looking to run for office? Get your team together
3: and make sure you have people that you trust with your life. Because that's the only way you can make it through an election season, is you have to have people that you know love you.
0: Rebecca, you said that this could be five films. <laughs> so it naturally makes me wonder, and, and I'm, I'm always hesitant to ask artists this, what's next? You know, uh, y- you've just done a huge project with Running With My Girls, but um, just briefly, what do you, what do you see as next?
3: Well... <laughs> Next up is uh, we're seeking some distribution for the films because we'd like a wide distribution. I think that this is a, while it's a local story, I do think it would resonate universally uh, internationally. So that's sort of where I'm working now. and I also am, uh, will be producing um, a new docu-series called She Quit with director and producer Summer Nettles. So that should be coming out in March. Um, but I hate to put the cart before the horse on that. <laughs> so that one's still, we're still just starting in production for that.
0: She Quit, I'm in, intrigued.
3: Mm, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a docu-series about black women leaving the workforce um, mm. because it becomes untenable.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us, Rebecca. And Monica, thanks so much for joining me.
3: Yes, thanks to you both. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, talking about the film, and I hope you liked it.
0: It's uh, such a picture of the city, but as you say, uh, of the larger issues that cities across the country are dealing with. Rebecca Henderson's new film, Running With My Girls, it's currently streaming through Sunday as part of the Denver Film Festival. And it also screens in person at four today at the C Film Center in Denver. Still to come, how one Grammy-winning bluegrass musician turned the banjo into an ethereal instrument. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. COVID cases are increasing in Colorado, and children are a factor in the spread. Even if they have mild symptoms, they can pass it to adults at home. Young children are now eligible to get vaccinated against COVID-19, and parents have questions about what that means. Questions like, is the vaccine safe? Where can you get a shot? And will your school or district mandate the vaccine? Get answers to these and other frequently asked questions about the COVID vaccine for children at CPR.org. The pandemic took banjo player Chris Pandolfi off the road No touring with his bluegrass band the infamous String Dusters. So holed up in his Denver home studio Pandolfi managed to pluck a more ambient sound from his rootsy instrument calls this solo project Trad Plus, which plays on a term coined by the late mountain music pioneer Doc Watson.
7: Traditional plus. Traditional music plus whatever else I'm into. And I thought that was really cool, especially in a music world where there really are a lot of purists and there are a lot of people who sort of look at that old school form of bluegrass as kind of the Holy Grail, and there's you know, mixed feelings about the evolution of the music. But, you know, we do love and pay homage to a lot of that old stuff and learn from that old stuff. But ultimately, we all just want to find our own voice.
0: On his new album, Trad Plus presents Trance Banjo, Pandolfi brings in synth software and samples, which you can hear in the tune Silver Droplet. Chris Pandolfi, where he draws his inspiration, especially when it comes to naming tracks on an instrumental album.
7: I'm a nerd, so that I'm just going to go ahead and admit that right now. And a few of these song titles are sci-fi references from different books that I love. I, I loved this sci-fi trilogy by this Chinese author Cixin Liu called The Three Body Problem, which you know won the Hugo Award and was really, really popular. And just This amazingly creative piece of fiction. And, you know, it's just a glimpse into another art form where someone is free and moving into this really, really unique and creative territory.
0: latest solo album from Chris Pandolfi is Trad Plus presents Trance Banjo. By the way, the infamous String Dusters are back on tour and playing for home state crowds with shows tonight at the Mission Ballroom in Denver and at the Mesa Theater in Grand Junction November 16th. Thanks for plucking along with us and with our team.
7: Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete, Pete Kramer,
0: Andrea
4: Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher.
7: Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers. Michael Hughes.
4: Carla Jimenez. Avery Lil,
7: Pedro Lumbrano.
4: Patrice
5: Mondragon.
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Monica Castillo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.